There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Welcome to No Mere Mortals Cover to Cover series. The Cover to Cover series is a chronological journey through the moments in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation centered on the main character of Jesus Christ. In 2020, the Lord directed the start of the Cover to Cover series that originally began as weekly installments for Sunday morning youth teachings at a local church. In 2023, the Cover to Cover series will move to being a podcast series and Lord willing will continue to be weekly installments. Guys, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, I just pray as we gather that just as Matt prayed, that our hearts and mind would be open to you. That God, as we read your word, that we experience you by your spirit through your word to ultimately become more like you. In your son's name, amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. So again, uh, we've been making our way through the book of Numbers. We've come to Numbers chapter 20. Last week, we looked at uh, Numbers... Um, getting up to 20 verse 13. So we're going to be picking right up uh, in Numbers chapter 20 verse 14 today. But just as a quick review of where we were, I know we took last week off with chocolate festival stuff. So uh, to catch us back up is, again, the, the nation of Israel had been wandering in the, the desert for 38 years. And this is a moment in the nation of Israel's history that you're going to hear brought up throughout Scripture all the time. The wandering in the wilderness. But something very fascinating is if you go to try and look through the wandering in the wilderness, you find yourself turning from like chapter 19 to then chapter 20 and go, wait, what just happened? And 38 years gone like that. That you don't have in scripture this detailed account of what happens throughout those 38 years. In Numbers chapter 33, you see like a travel log where it tells you every place that they stopped and when they left. And, um, you know, when we were back in uh, the book of Leviticus and even Exodus, we saw that there are times that they were led by the, again, uh, fire by night, cloud by day. And that sometimes it would be a single day that literally the Lord would lead them, stop, they'd set up camp. And the next day he'd move and they'd have to pack it all up and go again. Sometimes it was a month. Sometimes it was longer. But something very fascinating that to, to just understand is that when you find yourself in a place of that wilderness wandering, and where was that rooted in? Disobedience. Oh, an, an, an unwillingness to take hold the promises of God and in disobeying God saying, no, I don't trust you to hold to your promises. And it sent them on 38 years of wandering through the wilderness a place of producing no fruit. Now, God says he was disciplining them in that time. He was, he was conforming them until he wanted them to be. But to God, that's not even something that ends up making his record book. That it's this empty part of their life, whereas it's, it's God basically glosses over all of it. And the amazing promise is what we see that when he brings them back, he brings them back to the very place where he first declared, go into the land and take the promises. That they're back to Kadesh Barnea. And the amazing faithfulness of our God, that even when we, in disobedience, will have this time in our wandering, that God says, by faith, he doesn't define you by your lowest moments. Also, something to just understand is that when we're walking in disobedience, that there's nothing of recognition that God counts. God doesn't look at any work of the flesh as anything good. It's meaningless to him. And it's a pattern you're going to see throughout, throughout 
scripture, but again, that amazing promise that as you find yourself maybe in moments in your life of walking in disobedience, in your own barren wilderness, is that you have a faithful God who will bring you back to the place, and as if turning a single page, he goes, okay, let's get back to the promises that I have for you. Now, when we're also looking in uh, chapter 20, it says, now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. Verse 7 says, and they spoke to Moses saying, take, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give them drink to the congregation and to their animals. And again, this is even a call back to Exodus chapter 17, when very early on in, in heading into the wilderness and heading into the desert, the people complained about not having water. And God told Moses to take his rod and go up to this rock and to strike the rock and it would produce water. And that happened. And now here in Numbers chapter 20, God tells Moses something very different, not to strike the rock, but to go and to speak to the rock. But unfortunately, as we read in Numbers chapter 20, verse 10, and as Psalm tells us that, that Moses is frustrated. He's angry. He's angry with the people. They're back to Kadesh Barnea, and instead of being in a place of, of thrill and excitement to taking hold of the promises of God, they're questioning God again, and you see Moses, who had just lost his sister. Just lost his sister. His sister died. He's upset. Then these people that he's been wandering in the wilderness for 38 years, they're complaining against him and against God, and now as they're about to go into the promised land again, they start up the complaining again, and it just it turns in Moses, but in his anger, he does something incredibly wrong. It says in verse 10 that Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, here now, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I gave them. Moses directly disobeyed God. And then he misrepresents God because in his own anger, as that representative, it gave this impression that God was mad at the people for asking for water, for, for, for crying out for water. And you have a God who says, I, I want to pour out upon you. I want to pour out. And again, water so much is a picture of the Spirit. And God says, I want to pour that out for you. I want to provide for you. I'm not angry to provide for you. And then as he declared, must we make water come out of this rock again, taking the glory of God to himself. And what we see in this moment, this picture of this rock that completely marred and ruined the image that God wanted to establish for us and for all to understand is that God's going to establish the, the illustration in contrast to Moses' failure. But that God so cares about how those of us who call ourselves his representatives, those who dare to call, call yourself a Christian and wave the banner of Christianity, God cares how you live your life and how you represent him. But also know that here's this awesome promise because we all are going to fail. We're all going to fall short. It's that God will not withhold his blessings that he wants to pour out upon people because of the failure of his representatives, but he will hold his representatives accountable. In John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Him crying out the words of the prophets like Ezekiel, 
about this living water. And what Jesus did in that moment, there's this great celebration. And, and again, if you know the scene, it's kind of this awesome scene where for eight days, the people would take water and they would take it from uh, this pool and they would go up into Jerusalem and they'd pour water over the rock and the people would cry out, and, yay, they're cheering. And it was a symbol about how this moment, how God provided water from the rock. But on the eighth day, when they did it, they would pour out the water and everyone would go quiet. As if a, a silence remembering of the promise of the Messiah who will come to give living water. And it was on that eighth day when everyone goes quiet as they're pouring out that water that Jesus stands up and says, I'm the rock. This illustration's about me. This would have been everybody's quiet. And he stands up and yells this out. That's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1-4, through 4, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, who wants to flow upon you. And whenever you hear about that upon it, it's this, it's this imagery actually of a, of a spring. He talks about that spring of living water, that this water would spring up from within our soul and, and just burst out and fall upon us as though if you've ever gone to or been around a fountain as you see like the water splashing out from around as the water comes up from the fountain it's kind of getting everything around it wet that's that idea when he says that he wants to pour out that water upon us it's not just like a, a rain cloud bursts open and he pours out no it's a fountain that comes up from within and pours out upon us and so because of that and that overflowing that he wants to do it must start with that indwelling of the holy spirit in you to first drink and believe, to have the Holy Spirit in you, then you will be able to experience really God flowing from you. So with that, look with me now, Numbers chapter 20, verse 14. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardships that have befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We'll not pass through the fields or vineyards, nor will we drink from the wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left hand uh, as we pass through your territory. So again, knowing the geography here is that they're in Kadesh, and they want to get up. And, and, and almost like what's happening is instead of going right up north the, the way they went last time, is that Moses is going, okay, we're not going to go right through that same spot. Let's hang a right here. Let's head east, and we'll head towards Edom. You know, Edom, our, our brother's family, our, our dad's brother's family. We're going to go through that land, and then we'll, we'll kind of come up and, and hook around north from that end. And so in Kadesh, he sends word to Edom, his dad's brother's family. Remember, Jacob and Esau. Esau who becomes Edom. Jacob who becomes Israel. That whole family. Edom is of the line of Esau. Moses is this leading the people of Israel. So he's saying, hey, cousins, can we come through your land? And so some of us have this, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, if you ever get family together, there's sometimes family drama. Maybe there's some bad blood. There's some stuff going on. But, you know, he's invoking. He's saying, hey, Yes, you know it's been rough. We kind of were made slaves in Egypt for a really long time. It went, it went bad, uh, but God brought us out, and, and we're, we're heading to the promised land. Um, you, you know about that, the, the promise that, 
you know, that, that, that Jacob kind of stole from Esau, but, you know, it was never really promised to him in the first place. But, hey, can we go through your land? And we're not going to go through and, and, and take a bunch of the, the grapes, and we're not going to ruin your fields. We're just going to stick to the highway. So can we go through your land? And it says in verse 18 that Edom said to you, sure, bro, no problem. No, that's not what it says. Then Edom said to you, you shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So that got rough in a hurry. Hey, can we come through your land? I'm sure they're waiting for the, yeah, no problem. No, if you try that, we're going to cut you in half. Oof, things just got serious quick. So the children of Israel said to them, we'll go by the highway. And if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. So again, he's like, okay, maybe we caught, maybe we caught cuz on a bad day. Because I'm just saying, can, can we take the highway? We're, we're not going to go through. But in the chance that as we're going through the highway, that someone needs some water, we'll pay for it. We're not asking for a handout. We just want to go by on foot. Verse 20. Then he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. What a bummer of a moment. Moses, he's on the edge of the promised land, and he comes there, and, and his sister dies. And then after all this time, in his anger, he strikes the rock twice, misrepresents, and God goes, yeah, you're not going into the promised land. You don't get to go in there with all these. Almost 40 years. 40 years of this promise of getting to the land, gone. And then he reaches out to his cousin. Cousin, it's, it's, been, it's been rough. It's been a hard time. Can I just take the highway that goes through your land and, and, and we'll head north? No. I promise we're not going to ruin your land. We'll pay for whatever we need to eat or drink. And the cousin's response is not only no a second time, he basically sends an army out. Go, remember how I said I'll cut you in half? Try it. Come at me, bro. That's what Edom just pulled on his cousin. Judges gives us a little bit more insight to this. It says in Judges eleven seventeen through 18, Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent uh, to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh, and they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab came to the east side to the land of Moab and encamped on the other side uh, of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab for Aaron. Uh, Arnon was on the border. So they're in Kadesh. They want to go through. It's family. Family says no. They have to basically turn around, go back down south, go over by the way of the Red Sea Wilderness passageway, come back up and go far east, and they're coming back around. So they make this giant loop to come and go around Edom. This moment is what the entire book of Obadiah is going to be about. When you guys get to the book of Obadiah, when you read through that, Obadiah is going to bring up this moment. Edom gets held responsible. You're going to hear this come up several times, again, through judges and different, that the Edom, the family of who denied, God says, uh, there's judgment coming your way. And this animosity between the family, it doesn't even end here. You find out in the book of Psalm, uh, chapter 137, verses 7 and 8, 
that when Babylon eventually conquers Jerusalem, that again, Jerusalem and Edom right across from each other, that as Babylon is conquering Jerusalem, and we're going to get a little graphic for this moment, but I'll let you read it for yourself there in verses 7 and 8. But it says there that there was these people of Edom who were saying, raise it, raise it. He's basically, they're saying, destroy the foundations of, of Israel. That they're, they're looking on as Babylon is destroying, and it gets even worse, that basically what they're cheering is that Babylon, again, a little graphic, is taking infants and smashing them on rocks. And Edom is sitting there going, kill them. Kill all of them. And this is Edom, the people who refuse passage, that when they're attacked by their enemy, and as their babies are being smashed on rocks, and as, and as Babylon's doing that, Edom's going, yes destroy their foundations, get them. I want you to hear something. So we, we hear of this, this family member. This is not even backstabbing. This is when you're, you're down in your worst moment and they're cheering. But in Deuteronomy, God's going to say something very interesting to the people of Israel. Because as you hear about this refusal of this family, and, and this, they're not even turning you this, this like animosity. I mean, we can maybe, again, again maybe get your, your family gatherings. You know, the holidays come up, and sometimes there's bad blood, and there's this anger and resentment that can build up even in a family. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7 8, God says this to his nation of Israel about to head into the promised land. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Wait, so the people who are cheering because our children are getting smashed on rocks, don't hate them. Wait, these people who refuse this passage and made it harder, what are we, you're not to abhor them. He actually even goes as far, a little bit further in that uh, passage where he says, you shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. So as these people are about to go into the promised land, in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses is addressing the people just before they go in, God goes, oh, I got a final word. Remember how Edom didn't let you through? And knowing that they're going to be the enemies who were going to cheer the dash, God says, don't hate them. You don't get to hate them. They're family. Verse 22 of Numbers 20 says, Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Now again, this is to, to give us some understanding, is that you hear that Aaron and Moses don't get to go in, and you kind of think, well, that's kind of a raw deal. Moses is the one who struck the rock. Why does Aaron not get to go in? Again, greatest commentary on scripture is, Great job. So you get to find out right here is that what God is saying is, Aaron, no, you rebelled. God's making it clear. Aaron wasn't just standing by going, oh, bro, what are you doing? That Aaron was just as angry. Aaron was just, Aaron, again, through scripture, you kind of see he's kind of a follower guy. So when his brother is like, you rebels, Aaron's like, yeah, you rebels. And God's going, well, you don't get to go in now either. You join in. You're, you're supposed to be the high priest. But here's Moses. He's lost his sister. His cousin says, no, I don't know if you guys caught this, but what God just says, him, oh, by the way, now that you're on this mountain, yeah, your brother's going to die. So um, it's time to change out the high priest. So verse 25 says, take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor. 
and strip Aaron of his garment and put them on Eleazar his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned Aaron for 30 days. So the people, even, even though they complain against, they watch Aaron and Eliezer go up on the mountain. And you don't know how much the congregation knows. Hey, what are they doing? Where are they going? Moses' brother, oh, Aaron's son. They start coming down the mountain. I can count to three and there's, there's only two. They come down and go, yeah, Aaron's dead. And the people just break for 30 days. And, and actually we find out again later in Numbers chapter 33, there's verse 37 and 39. That again, they moved from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the boundary of the land of Edom. Then Aaron the priest went up onto Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. On the first day of the fifth month, Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. So even this 30 days, it was the first day of the month. So it's the very first day of month. And so literally for an entire month, they spend the whole month at this mountain just heartbroken. Just heartbroken. And again, this was the priest. This was all these questions come in. Of, again, the high priest has died. What does this mean? Who's Okay, so his son, is his son going to do a good job? Is, is, is there all these things that there's uncertainty that comes from that. The reality that here was the high priest. Wait, you mean even the high priest of God can die? And so it would, just, it would bring an uncertainty and just a, a sorrow that would fill this camp that lasted for a whole month. But guys, again, as I said, that God is going to take that image of the rock that Moses marred, is that even in this moment, understanding the death of the high priest, which is going to kick off a history of high priest living, dying, passing it on. High priest living, dying, passing it on. And it starts this whole chain of the high priest death and handing off. And yet by the time you get to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 and 28, we're told this about our high priest our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those priests to offer up sacrifices for, his, for first his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, that image of the rock that was struck at Mirabah, that was struck once. That is why God told Moses, the rock you already struck it, it's already been struck once. Now they can come and receive that water just by asking that Christ who was struck once when he offered up himself for the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law appoints the son who has been protected, perfected forever. 
And what is it that this high priest tells us? As we, as we look at this life, when we look at this, we have a high priest who lives, Jesus who, who lives forever, making intercession for you, that God is there, Jesus is there, praying for you. Again, I hope you know that. That as you have an enemy that will come at you and accuse you and try and define you by your lowest moments in life, that you have your Savior, your God, your rock, who stands daily, living forever, making intercession, go, no, I paid for that person. They're not defined by that. That when you're at your low moments in life and you wonder, does anyone care? No, Jesus himself is praying for you. And what is it that our high priest has called us to? What kind of life does he call us to, to represent him? First and foremost, we're called to love our brother. First John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have for, from him, that he who loves God must also love his brother also. <coughs> Just as we're told that, that's really... Jesus echoing the consistency of God's word. Because back in Leviticus chapter 19, 17, and 18, which we already went through, if you were with us, says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Wait, what if my neighbor is, is a total jerk face and won't even let me go by the street without wanting to hurt me. Yeah, he's supposed to love them. Well, what if they call for my destruction? What if they're happy when our families and our children die? Yeah, he's supposed to love them. To love your neighbor as yourself. Again, as he would say in Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself there is no commandment greater than these. Now, there's a, there's a question that might arise in, in your mind. As Jesus says, love your brother. Na love your neighbor as yourself. And if there's anyone in this room who, who sits there and goes, yes, but who is my brother and who is my neighbor? Know that you are falling in the same place as a lawyer who thought he could justify himself before Jesus after quoting back to him that very law to love God and love your neighbor. And then he goes, yeah, but Jesus, who's my neighbor? And in Luke chapter 10, verse 29 through 37, but he, this lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among sleeves. Thieves, not sleeves. We already had that debate earlier. Who fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. 
And whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, well, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now again, to understand <coughs> the context of the parable that Jesus is bringing him to. It's called the high priest, a Levite. This lawyer would have understood, okay, well, this is, this is religious elite. This is the family of, of Levi, the family that Aaron's from. And then a Samaritan who was considered enemy to the people of Israel, who were placed there by the Assyrians as they tried to move them out of Israel by putting in people from other countries. And they looked at these Samaritans as, as just an offensive enemy. And he looks at this guy and says, so, so you tell me, who more followed that law? The person by blood who is there because they have a name and a title. The one who does all the religious things. Or the one who saw somebody in need and met that need right where they were. The person who was even considered an enemy by other standards. For that we understand again, to love our brother, to love our neighbor. And then Jesus, if that wasn't hard enough, takes us to a place and says, well, by the way, love your enemy also. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, 36, Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Again, guys, we read these religious texts. We read this awesome book, and sometimes we pass over. I don't know if, we, if, if anyone here hears that and goes, How? I can barely stand when I get together with certain family members and you're telling me to love that person. Then I have this neighbor who's offensive and annoying, always fighting with the fence lines and God is calling us to love these people. And then he goes a step further and says, no, the person who hates you, love them. Yeah, but what if they say mean things about me? Yeah, love them. Well, what if they're, they're, they're spreading a bunch of rumors about me? Yeah, love them. Well, well, what if we just, every time we get together, we're just ready to fight. I, I can't tell you guys. I seriously had one guy that I fought with. I, this is no joke. I don't know how this actually happened, but from probably about first grade to sophomore year of high school, at least once a year, I got in a fight with a guy. Same guy. So what happens when you grow up in a small town. And so you read a passage like this and you go, love your enemies. And you go, oh yes, oh yeah, love your enemies. Got it. Really? We got that? I think we're still trying to work on the brother-neighbor thing. And here Jesus comes along and says, love your enemies. To do good to those who hate you. Again, those who would cheer on the death of your family. I mean, again, let's not let these things pass by. Is, is religious tradition platitudes that we hear these words that these people hated Israel. They were happy when their children were being murdered. And God says, don't hate them. And then our high priest who never dies. Love your brother. Love your neighbor. All right. Love your neighbors. Oh, come on now. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them also. Now, I'm just going to say real quick. I'm not going to go a whole lot of time on this because it's really not the point. This is not anyone who uses that verse and that passage as a 
any kind of like, well, you know, if there's domestic abuse and the guy's pounding on the girl, just take it because you know, it says turn the other cheek. No, 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 no. That is not what he's talking about. This slap on the cheek is very much in the way of in old-timey English days, they would take that glove off and say, have at thee, sir. Hata! Is that is turn? It is, again, within the context, he's talking about those who are cursing at you. Those who are insulting you. Those who, who are speaking ill will against you. The slap in the face is that insult. And if anyone has ever lived this life long enough, you've had someone, right? They're really good at picking like some feature. For me, somehow, my name Bryce always got, and uh, they thought themselves genius to connect it with a certain rice dish that was called the San Francisco treat. Brilliant people since kindergarten always come up with this, and they'll just take your name and mock you for your name. I don't need to say the jingle. If you know it, you got it. You get the idea. But people are really good about taking some feature of us, and they'll twist it, and it's an insult. It's just, it's a slap in the face. And sometimes, especially when you're like, man, that's not even a smart one. Just dumb. And he says, hey, when they insult you and it's like a slap on the face, don't let anger build up. Don't let resentment come, because that's self-destruct. That's going to kill you. It's going to turn you into the thing that you don't like. And so he says, when the insult comes, let the other one just wash right over you. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Again, this, our high priest who's praying for us and what he's calling us to is to a life that is other. A life that when someone looks at it, they go, how in the world are you tolerating that? And we can say, oh, believe me, this is not Bryce. I can tell you all the things that Bryce wants to do and say. It is only Christ who's making it possible that I don't go off right now. And he's saying, so you, you like people who like you? Sinners do that. What, what struggle is that? How hard is that to do? People who love you and give you good things. Well, I love those who love me. All right. Who doesn't? And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, to be repaid in full, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But again, love your enemies. Do good to them and lend without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Why are we to do this? Why are we to love our enemies? Because as we're told in the book of Romans that while we were still his enemies, he died for us. Any of us who sit in this room right now, grateful and content to know that because by our faith we're going to heaven is to understand that is not something you earned or deserved. You cannot. You cannot be good enough to get into heaven. And while you were the enemy of God, he loved you so much that he gave his life for you. Again, for us who sit in this room, again, let this process in your mind that when God knew that you would someday say, forget you, I'm going to do it my way. I'll take the throne. I'll sit on that while you declared yourself to want to take his position as God in your life. 
knowing ahead of that that you would do that, he says, even knowing that they would do that, I'm going to die for them and give my life for them. So why are we called to this life? Because he did it first. We love because he first loved us. Not out of trying to earn your way to heaven, but out of complete gratitude. I've heard it said even recently, and I get the sentiment, I get the sentiment. Good thing there's a hell. Oh man, I, I get it. For our enemies, it's, it's, you, you, you go, ooh, you read about some of these stories. Again, we talk about people wanting your kids to be dashed against rock, and there's a good part of you that goes, oh, I... And I get it. And I want you to know that God wants to bring destruction to his enemies. He declares this. And his primary tool of destroying his enemy was the cross where all of his wrath was poured out and he made a mockery of every spiritual force against him. That he declares that when you placed your faith in him, the old person died. He killed his enemy by giving them salvation. Good thing there's a hell. Good God, thank you, there's a cross. We were all destined for that place of chaos and rebellion because that's what we chose. And he comes along and by the cross and empty tomb proves to us that we have a Jesus who lives eternally. And he offers you new life in him. Because apart from a faith in him, there is only hell of eternal chaos. And this is the loving truth, guys, that Jesus died for your sins. He paid the price and punishment so you would never have to. And he lives to offer this life for you eternally. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time in your word. Father, I just pray that again, as, as we, we hear these words and we hear about how this, this family fought against family, they, 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 they praised the death of their children. You told them not to hate them. You are our high priest who lives forever and you call us to love our brothers, to love our family, to love our neighbors, to even love our enemies because that's exactly what you did. By the cross, you destroyed your enemies and gave them new life in you. You are that good. You are that great. And when we live lives in gratitude, not trying to earn your favor, but in gratitude to say thank you of your amazing grace and love. In your son's name, amen. The Cover to Cover series is part of No Mere Mortal. The No Mere Mortal ethos derives from the biblically grounded and inspired work of C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. You can find more No Mere Mortal content, including the Cover to Cover series, on our website at nomeremortal.org. Follow us on Twitter, Truth, Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, and most major podcasting services. Subscribe, follow, like, comment, leave a review, and share. The music you've heard has been provided by Sicko. That's C-I-K-K-0. And you can find him at YouTube at Sicko's Beat Suck 797. My name is Bryce, and you are no mere mortal.